Well, after a particularly stirring teaching from one of our pastors, a friend of mine felt inspired to retell the story of Genesis 3, which she called Genesis 3 Reimagined. Genesis 3, for anyone who's not up on Genesis right now, is the story of a serpent tempting Adam and Eve, or first humans, away from God. And it's often subtitled, The Fall or the Temptation and the Fall of Man. When I learned the story first in Hebrew school as a young Jewess, and then in the church I attended as a young woman, it might as well have been called The Fall of Humankind and Why Woman is Responsible. <laughs> While Kim kept to the text, she interspersed some meaning-making from a woman's point of view. The story was hilarious and profound, but I think that my friend's point was that it matters how we tell a story. It matters who tells the story. So this morning, we're going to look at an Easter story from the Gospel of John, and we're going to pay attention to the details that he gives us and look at some of the fallout from that and then see what our invitations are and what the good news is to us as Jesus followers who both celebrate resurrection and participate in it. So John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. All through the Gospels, we get the insecurity and competitiveness of the disciples, of Peter and John in particular, and here we get it again replete with foot race to the tomb, who goes in first, who gets there first, and so on. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, 
but she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to the others and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them the things that he had said to her. So Jesus, of course, had been crucified. The understanding in the first century was that if you were an insurrectionist, someone fomenting rebellion, and the group that you led was dangerous, you would be killed, and the whole group would be killed. And this happened at least a couple times in the first century. If, however, you were a nonviolent leader, in Jesus' case, one who challenged Caesar claiming to be a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom, one who preached equity and care for all, one who rode on a donkey and not on a horse, one who cared for the poor and the sick and who partnered with those whose society rejects, you alone as the leader would be crucified. As an example to scare your people who would then presumably scatter and your movement would come to nothing with minimal killing. Jesus was known as a humble king and while challenging power at every step using today's language, we might call him a nonviolent resistor, carrying on the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew prophets. Jesus said no to oppression within his system and beyond. But his methods were nonviolent, submitting himself to his journey even to death on a cross. Peter denies Jesus three times because he's afraid. The less connected I am to Jesus, the less likely that I will be made an example of. Some scholars argue that it would be safer for a woman to go to the tomb. Maybe women were seen as less of a threat. Maybe Mary is being strategic, leaving when it's still dark. But I don't think so. Mary is chomping at the bit. She doesn't appear to be thinking about Herod the Great or Pontius Pilate or crucifixions. She's thinking about Jesus. Sabbath ends, and as soon as she can, I imagine just as the sun is beginning to rise, she makes 
her way to the tomb, and when Peter and John leave, she alone remains at the tomb, and she alone hears her name, Mary. It's a beautiful and unlikely story. Mary Magdalene is the first witness of the resurrected. Jesus, at a time where women cannot be credible witnesses, where all the stories are told by men, John tells us it is Mary who comes to the tomb. She is first to utter the words in her heart, the words that we declare every Easter, he is risen. And we can almost hear the heavenly host echo, he's risen indeed. While Jesus has remained resurrected in the imagination of the church, Mary Magdalene has had a precarious and illustrious journey. This is a quote from Smithsonian Magazine. It says, Mary Magdalene's image was conscripted into one power struggle after another and twisted accordingly in conflicts that defined the Christian church over attitudes focused on sexuality, the authority of an all-male clergy, the coming of celibacy, the branding of theological diversity as heresy, the sublimations of courtly love, the unleashing of chivalrous violence, the marketing of sainthood, whether in the time of Constantine, the Counter-Reformation, the Romantic Era, or the Industrial Age, through all of these reinventions of Mary Magdalene played their role. In other words, Mary has been called everything from prostitute to the wife of Jesus. And scripture doesn't help us with our confusion. Mary was a common name in the first century, and there are lots of Marys in the Gospels, and it can be tricky to keep them straight. So here is what we do know. We do know that Mary Magdalene is never, ever, ever, ever in the Bible referred to as a sex worker. We know that she traveled with Jesus. We know that she supported Jesus with her own money. We know that she was devoted to Jesus. We know that she was important enough to be mentioned in all the Gospels where few of the thousands who followed Jesus were mentioned by name and, of course, fewer still who were women. In the later Gospels that don't make it into our canon, she was said to be as important to the early church as Peter. It was an impossible task to let the woman who would first declare the risen Christ to the world remain untarnished. John's Gospel is doing everything it can to present Mary unambiguously as a hero. She stands in a long line of reviled and diminished individuals, some diminished in the text and others diminished by hearers and readers of the text who are exalted by Jesus. And our treatment of Mary reveals us to ourselves. It shows us that unless the person in front of us checks all the right demographic and accomplishment boxes, for the role they're given, we will tear them down. 
We will diminish them. We will make their story other than what it is. And in the gospel, John does everything he can to prevent that. Imagine, for example, that the story was instead John greeting Jesus outside the tomb. And we would all think, yes, of course. Isn't this lovely and fitting? And as it should be, the disciple who Jesus loved revealing Jesus to the world. But instead, it's Mary who's there before sunrise. And it is Mary who lingers at the tomb. And it is to Mary that Jesus first reveals himself in his new body. And John and Peter, those who by identity and putative roles should have been given this honor, are explicitly portrayed as a little bit bumbling, self-absorbed, and in the end, absent. Jesus himself dignifies Mary, exalts her, commissions her with mission and purpose. So what does John's telling of our Easter story have to say to us this morning? Well, number one, we are reminded that how we tell a story matters. Who gets lifted off, what we emphasize. John was telling a story just like you and I do every day. And the details that John includes are incredible. He laughs at Peter and he laughs at himself. Throughout the Gospels, we hear of their need to be the best, asking Jesus who is the greatest and demanding to sit next to Jesus when he comes into power. The details John supplies, who's faster, who goes into the tomb first, they don't really tell us anything, but they highlight the contrast with Mary, who is at the tomb, who comes to get them, who remains after they leave. John's Easter story reminds us that it matters how you and I tell our stories. Who gets named? Who's left out? Who's lifted up? Who is laughed at? Womanist theology, which we could think of as black feminist liberation theology, arose as black female theologians in the 90s, looked at the intersection of race and class and oppression in the academy and the church and in the Bible. And a whole discipline arose looking specifically at scripture, at who had voices and who didn't. And these women helped us imagine Bible stories where unnamed women were given names and a scant few sentences were fleshed out into paragraphs. We owe a debt to womanist theologians for their resurrecting the lives of those biblical characters that have been demonized or forgotten. Number two, showing up. Mary goes to the tomb. She's there. She shows up. She wants to be where Jesus is. It's unclear if she's holding out hope. It's unclear if she had ears to hear Jesus say, the Son of Man must die, but on the third day. It just seems that every cell in her body is crying out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Glennon Doyle, who's a popular author and podcaster, describes our lives as brutal, beautiful and brutal. And it's as though Mary understands that Jesus can hold all 
that is her life, the beautiful and the brutal, that somehow even death can't stop it. So she waits. She remains. Mary invites us to wait in our desolate moments and our desperate spaces to wait, to remain. A few weeks ago, there was a call for progressive clergy to come to the state capitol. The lobbyists were wanting legislators to hear that many Christians are concerned about the treatment of LGBTQ individuals in these laws. They wanted legislators to know that many Christians were concerned about the banning of books and the many challenges faced by teachers and librarians. I drove to the Capitol with one of our kids' pastors to speak with legislators. Later that week, one of Sanctuary's attenders, Dr. Katie Mborek, was riveting as she testified before the Government Oversight Committee and responded to their questions about best practices for providing gender-affirming care to minors in Iowa. Katie did not go to the Capitol because she knew that things would change. Amy and I did not go to the Capitol because we knew that things would change. We went because we understand the importance of remaining, of showing up. We understand that we stand with a just God. We understand that our going signals something to the folks we love and care about and to those who hold differing opinions. We can't control how long we wait. We can't control when we hear our name spoken. We don't know when the moment comes when we are standing at the tomb and a gardener appears to us and asks what we want. We don't know when a simple request reveals the living God so we do our best, we come. We show up and we wait, trusting in resurrection. Number three, the resurrection. Jesus did rise and with him his followers, and we with him and his followers didn't scatter. Not ultimately, what began with announcing himself to Mary and a few friends culminated on Pentecost as the Spirit of God was unleashed on the world, heaven opening and God being poured out. Josephus is a first century Jewish historian, and he wrote about 60 years after the crucifixion. And what he wrote about was his surprise that so many Jesus followers remained. The crucifixion, in the political sense, didn't take Right? The political agenda killed the leader and set an example, and the rest will scatter. It didn't work. For a moment, Peter and the disciples are lost. For a moment, they have gone back to fishing, 
for a moment. They're there with their heavy hearts, lost in their own swirl, playing the words over and over again that Jesus said to them, no one will stand with me. You will deny me three times, mired in their own fear and shame. But Easter reminds us that the Spirit of God cannot be contained, that death is not the final word, that we cannot quash God with soldiers and weapons. We cannot quash God with harmful legislation. We cannot quash God by messing with the identities of our heroes. Let me close with this. I came to faith as a young woman. I attended a charismatic church. That means that they kind of majored in Holy Spirit stuff, which included praying for the sick. Um, I don't know how many people actually got healed, but I think some did. I was very new to all of this. Anyway, I was not very theologically sophisticated, um, and I'm now within the first few Sundays of attending this church and of coming to faith. I learned that God wants to heal all sickness because that's what they told me, um, how they understood the Bible. And soon after that, I got sick. And um, of course I did because we do that, we get sick. And so I prayed, and I remember I was in my living room at the time, and I said, God, heal me. Um, I might have said please because I was a polite prayer. <laughs> I waited, and um, nothing happened. But I was patient, and I prayed a little bit longer, and I was still sick. So I was getting kind of disillusioned because I wasn't sure how this whole thing worked, but it seemed like I was doing my part and God was not doing God's part. Well, I bought a Bible when I became a Christian, so it was just like weeks earlier, and I got out my Bible, and I did what any mature Christian did. I opened it up like a magic Ouija board to see what God wanted <laughs> to say to me, and I saw a subtitle, because of course you see a subtitle, because they're bold, and the other words are not bold, and the subtitle said, God heals on the Sabbath. So I was pretty excited. It was Thursday. Now, I was a little confused because the Jewish Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night, and the Christian Sabbath, as I was understanding it, was on Sunday, and I wasn't exactly sure which one God was favoring, so I held it loosely. Now, I did get better on the Sabbath. It would have been hard not to because I wasn't very sick and I had a three-day window, but I was relieved and God was vindicated. Now, my own faith has grown some over the years. I look back at that time fondly. I was young and I was sincere and in that sense, maybe not so different than Mary. But it would take me time to understand that the miracle of Easter went beyond healing a cold or even repairing a woman's 
reputation. The miracle of Easter is the unstoppable force of God's goodness and love. Not soldiers, not laws, not slander, not death, Paul says in Romans, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything under all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Easter story is the good news that Mary Magdalene preached to us 2,000 years ago. He is risen. Amen.